The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What is evil? Is it a force that lives outside us or something that dwells within? How good are we at recognizing it? We all crave a lens that will allow us to see what's true. And I think that's what all of these are about. That trying to see correctly, trying to see what's in front of you. I think it's very, very difficult. And especially when we're talking about good and evil, right? Especially in those cases, because the stakes are so high. We're talking to Professor Rebecca Mesbarger, expert in the Italian Enlightenment and post-fascist detective fiction, today on The History of Literature. Okay, today is a great episode. It's a great day. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Now, let me give you a little background for this one. Today's guest is someone I've known a long time. Professor Rebecca Mesbarger was one of my Italian teachers when I was in college. I think I've talked about this a little before, but I don't think I've ever explained how or why she was so important. She and my other Italian teacher, Ellen, I hope to have her on the show soon, too. Look, Chicago, University of Chicago, is a gloomy place. It's morose, morbid. It's gotten better, I've heard. <laughs> but when I was there, it was like, well, in some ways it was, in some ways it was like a paradise on earth, a scholarly paradise. Books, books, intense study of books. There was no place that was better for diving deep into great books and tough ideas and for just about everything else you can think of, things like, I don't know, enjoying life, embracing the actual world, being happy. For fostering things like that, there was no place that was worse. Everyone was a misfit. Everyone was a malcontent. That's how it felt to me anyway. I'm not talking about the business school. Those people were happy. I'm talking about the college, the undergraduate college. It was dark and gray and gloomy. I adored it. It also nearly killed me. It was like being in a vice, a gray vice. That sounds like torture. That's kind of what it was, intellectual torture. It was like taking your mind and putting it on the rack. And then retreating to a dark little hovel where your body was a husk of itself, whimpering, and where the sun never came out. And then I had to take a language. I tried to take Spanish, booked. I tried to take French, booked. German, Latin, everything was booked. What was left? That's what I asked. Well, what, 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 is, what does have room for me? What will take me? Italian. So I took Italian, and there, the people there in the Italian department, it was, it was like a new world, a world where the sun was shining, where the sun existed. It was like I had been underground. 
and was coming up for air. These were smart people, just as smart as all my other professors. But they were also having fun, enjoying life, embracing life. It was a revelation. It was also a kind of life raft, a tow rope someone had tossed in the water. Pulling me from a dark ocean to the shore. Well, I don't know if I could call it the shore. Pulling me from the murky dark ocean to the desert island where I still live. My main teacher was Ellen. She was fantastic. I thought she was one of a kind. Well, she is, in a way. A top ten favorite of mine, of all the people I've ever known. But then I also met Rebecca. And I realized these people are just happier. Still as intelligent, still engaged with literature and culture and art and everything else, but brighter, brighter in the sunnier sense. Positive, hopeful, alive. There was some kind of scheduling mix-up, and I wound up as the only student registered for Rebecca's class. So we had class, but the two of us would meet everywhere on campus coffee shops, lunch, somewhere outside in the fresh air, to talk about Italy. You know those things you devise to look at an eclipse with a sheet of paper or a piece of cardboard and a pinhole with a little ray of light? This was like a pinhole, or like peering into a camera obscura. My week was a dark box. And then for a few hours every week, I'd get a burst of light. Ellen, Rebecca, Italian. So here we go. You'll hear why I'm enjoying this so much. There's a part where I laugh in a way that I'm not sure I've ever laughed before in my life. And it's recorded on tape for all to hear. Here we go. A conversation with the lady anatomist herself, Rebecca Messbarger. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
I'm joined now by my guest, who's a professor of Italian history and women, gender, and sexuality studies at Washington University in St. Louis, Professor Rebecca Messbarger. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Jack. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so I'm interested in when your interest in Italian began. I know I, I don't know if you grew up in, a, in an Italian household or anything, but it seems like at some point, either high school or maybe college, uh, the Italy bug bit you. How did that happen? So, I mean, it's kind of a weird story. No, I'm not even a schmidgen Italian. I'm mostly Irish, so I have no business being an Italianist. <laughs> but um, when I was in college, um, I went to Loyola in Chicago, and they had a Rome Center. Mm -hmm. And there was a point in, in my freshman year when I thought, I need to get out of Chicago and go see the world. And so um, I was a faculty brat because my dad taught at Loyola, so I could uh, go So you grew, up, you grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, and yeah. And then you went there, and okay, so yeah, you needed to get out. I needed to get out, and in, and in fact, um, it's sort of funny, but a friend of mine, Michael Bennett, was a year ahead of me, and had just come back from Rome Center in, uh, in you know, the Loyola Rome Center, and he had me over to his house to talk about Rome Center, and actually, he planted the seed. I mean, he was the guy mm. who, I don't know, just made me yearn to go to this place. Um, unfortunately, he told me that I only needed um, like hiking boots and flannel shirts. I don't know why he said that. So I packed a bag of only hiking boots and flannel shirts, <laughs> which was not, you know, de rigueur right. for Ross. <laughs> <laughs> like Rome, Alaska or something. I know. I don't know. What it was. <laughs> and the other thing that he said to me was, you can't live on campus. You must live off campus with the oh, family. And that's advice. actually what I did. Yep. So yeah. you hadn't even had Italian or you had been taking some Italian when that? No. Zero. Oh, nothing. Okay. Nothing. So this was just, it, you owe it all to this guy. I do. Michael Bennett. <laughs> and, and here you are years and years later, and you've basically been immersed in Italy and Italian culture and Italian language ever since. That's right. That's right. And he really, you know, it's amazing how influential he was. You know, he said, you must g become fluent. So get out right. of the American ghetto, go live with a family. I did everything that he told me, <laughs> except eventually I didn't wear flannel anymore. <laughs> You might have been the only female in the entire nation of Italy who was wearing <laughs> who was wearing that outfit. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay, so I uh, I noticed this was a, a story that uh, this this kind of cracked me up. I was trying to do some research on you to make sure I was up on all of the things that you do, and I got your title right and everything. And uh, I was typing in your name, and Google started suggesting things to me, and it, it gave three suggestions. One was just your name, Rebecca Messbarger. The other, the second one was Rebecca Messbarger, Washington University, St. Louis, and I thought that was you. And then the third was Rebecca Messbarger, Lady Anatomist. And I was wondering, are you is that are you moonlighting? Is that uh, is that what professors do these days to to make ends meet? You know what. It, it, it's funny. It's the title of my most recent monograph. And ah. so it was a book that I wrote. But I also became a lady anatomist um, in a way because doing research for the book, I ended up taking gross anatomy um, at Washington University Medical School and dissecting poor cadavers. So, really? 
that was my back, <laughs> background research. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Phenomenal. It was the most exquisite, wonderful educational experience I've ever had. Yeah. Oh, wow. Were you writing about the museum in Bologna? Is that how it started, or was there a particular anatomist that you were writing about, or how did you... Yeah, so what happened was I got a wonderful fellowship called a New Directions Fellowship from the Andrew Mellon Foundation, mm -hmm. and it allowed me to leave Italian literature for a couple of years and retool as a historian of medicine. Mm. And this was all a backdrop to my writing this book called The Lady Anatomist, which is about a woman anatomist of the Italian 18th century who was also an anatomical wax modeler. And oh. her waxes are in that museum you were referencing in Bologna, in the Poggi Museum. But I wanted to understand what her experience was like dissecting a thousand cadavers in her kitchen by her wow. estimation, and then casting wax models of the living body from the dead. I wanted mm -hmm. to understand sort of that imaginary leap that, that, that she had to take from right. putrefying cadaver to vibrant, animate facsimile of the body. And so I ended up taking this course and, um, and writing that book. Wow. Yeah. That, that is really something. So were you also doing the wax part of it, or were you just with the cadavers, and that allowed you to, to see what it would be like for her? You know, I, would I, I wanted to take a course in um, casting anatomical wax modeling, mm -hmm. but I couldn't find one. Um, and instead, I, 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 I went through this, this very elaborate di dissection course, so it was great. I got to dissect four cadavers as opposed to one. Um, which is typical in medical school, mm -hmm. because I was working with the the physical therapy class. Right. Um, so in a way, it, 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 anyway, so seeing how the body looks dead and how everything is flattened out really gave me a sense of what she was able to do. And, you know, sh there were no means of, um, the body was putrefying before even the first cut in the 18th century. They had no right. means of preserving the body then. So it was amazing. And the other thing I did, I went to a lot of surgeries. So I got to see the open living body right. and work on the dead body. So, you know, I didn't get to make wax models, but uh, that's always in my future. Now, you know, what I'm kind of thinking of is uh, when I was taking Italian class and there was always some guy who was, you know, a little bit older and, and he was just a part of the class and we would all kind of say hello. And we kind of realized he was older. He didn't seem quite like a student. And then... You know, later on, you'd find out that he was actually a, a professor of mathematics or something, and he was taking <laughs> he was taking Italian class because he, you know, was going on a, to to deliver a paper at a conference, and he thought it would be fun to learn some of the language or something. And were you kind of the being among all of the medical students or whoever was taking this class? Were they sort of excited and curious to know what you were doing there? Yeah, I mean, they were, and uh, they were very nice. Um, but I did make an absolute fool of myself the very first day. Oh, no. Yeah, because, you know, I was nervous. I didn't know how I was going to react to a cadaver, and I wanted to be especially prepared because I was older than everybody in the class, and I was the interloper. And actually, it's a little bit of a funny story. There was a lot of pushback from the medical school about letting me into the class. 
Right. The university council had to get involved and say, you have to let her in. Oh, wow. And, and actually, for a while, they said that I could come in and watch, but I couldn't dissect. And then, you know, the terms of my fellowship really required that I be allowed to be a full participant. So then they said, well, you can come in and dissect, but you have to get your own cadaver. <laughs> And here's a um, shovel. Yeah, so like I Google <laughs> cadaver, and uh, I found that I could buy a cadaver on the open market for about $800. But then they were like, well, where is she going to store her cadaver? I mean, am I going to cart my cadaver around? And were you you're paying for that in bitcoins? <laughs> there you go. There you go. But so anyway, I was very excited but also apprehensive about yeah. this and wanted to do a really good job. So I read all of the instructions about the first day of class and everything we needed, which was we needed scrubs and scalpels and, you know, like a uh, thing for your hair, like, you know, little caps, gloves, latex gloves. And so I went and got all of this stuff. And what I didn't realize is the first class was lecture. So I showed up in full gear, like my hair. <laughs> I'm in my scrub. And it's a huge class, and um, <laughs> the teacher, the teacher at the front of the room on her microphone said, "Oh, and I believe we have a professor of Italian." <laughs> and I had to stand up in all my humiliation. In Ciao. Of of <laughs> so, and they're in jeans, and I'm in, you know, oh boy, my scrub. So. Yeah. I mean, that whole experience, I should write about it someday because I learned so much across cadavers that yes. I never thought I would learn about yes, human, you should. human nature, living human nature. <gasps> it's almost like a, you know, a method actor or something. And, and sometimes writers of nonfiction journalism will, they go in and they, they fight 10 rounds with Muhammad Ali or something and then they write about it or they you know I'm thinking of George Plimpton he tries out for the he plays quarterback for the Lions or something you really were doing something like that yeah yeah I, I really was I really was I was yes and but then you know I, I think like all of those people once you get into your part you kind of lose yourself in it and that's that ended up happening right that really right. did I mean one thing I just have to tell you one tiny thing that I learned and that was about the politics across the cadaver, and again, someday I will write about this, that I never expected. You're four to a cadaver, two on each side, and I had a partner. It was two women, me and Jillian, and then mm -hmm. two guys on the opposite side. And um, oh boy. who gets to dissect? Okay, and, and that makes sense because, you know, there are two arms and two legs and two, <laughs> two of many things, right? Right. So yep. you can do that. But um, you split it up. You split it up exactly. But one of the things that uh, I didn't realize is that there were going to be we were all going to be very uh, shy in the beginning, and then we were going to really be territorial. Like I want to, I want to dissect this. Back off. So there was you played basketball, I played basketball. There was all kinds of basketball boxing out over the cadaver. <laughs> <laughs> So we had to really, Jillian and I had to really fight for our piece of that cadaver. Oh. And uh, it was so funny. And there was gender politics and there was just sort of um, yeah. size. Size did matter over the cadaver. It was and very, it, very funny. <laughs> In the movie version of this, you will be played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. 
<laughs> and I'll be slapping some of them down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, that is great. That's fantastic. I'm glad I asked about the, uh, this is a time where Google did not steer me wrong. The uh, yeah. Rebecca Messbarger lady anatomist is was worth, uh, worth asking about. <laughs> okay, so you're here to talk about some books. I asked you to choose a few books to share with us. I know you have such good taste in reading and that your uh, immersion in Italy has given you a really interesting uh, cross-cultural perspective. And let's start with the first one, which is actually an American book. Actually, before we start with the books, let's start with the theme, The Dilemma of Recognition, Especially of Good and Evil. Yeah. The first thing I wanted to ask about is if you've noticed any differences in conceptions of good and evil as we think of them in America or uh, as we think of them, as Italians think of them, or is that just too broad of a question to, is, is that a meaningless question? No, I think actually it's a really good question. And one of the things I just have to tell you is that I specialized in two things in my studies of Italian literature. And one was the 18th century, the Enlightenment, and there's a connection here. And the other was the detective novel, the literary detective novel. So, and, 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 and I think I've got to at some point give some back, background on, on the detective novel because there's a couple here. And I kind of think that investigation, right. detection, discernment, is relevant for all of these books that I chose. So going back to your question about is there a difference in in cultural difference in conceptions of good and evil, and I think, you know, very basically, any any country that has lived under a totalitarian fascist government has a different mm. concept of evil. Yep. And I do think that that, that it, it, and in some ways, that is directly tied to my my theme of the discernment or the recognition of good and evil, because Italy, even today, is still grappling with its experience of fascism mm -hmm. and its complicity. To what extent? I mean, today you ask, and nobody was ever fascist ever. You know, who were those fascists? Right, right. But um, some of the books that I chose deal directly with that. And did it, it, is it separated from heaven and hell, or? Or evil in terms of, you know, as, as it might be handed down through Christianity or? Well, I think, you know, being that Italy is, you know, the center of Catholicism, the, the capital of Catholicism, right. if you will, and, and it's difficult history. It's very complicated history. Mm -hmm. It's all tied in. And I think what ends up happening is maybe instead of thinking that, yes, there is this black and white that you can see. There's more of a recognition of how how imprecise our radar is for these sorts of things, how we really don't see. I mean, even though these things now you can look back and say, oh, this is what was going on, this 20-year history in Italy of fascism suggests that for a long time, there was blindness. Well, it's let's uh, let's postpone that, and we'll get into it. I'm sure as we talk about uh, each of these individual books. But I'm just fascinated by the idea. I've always been kind of fascinated by a sense that evil exists in the world outside of humans, mm -hmm. and you know that that's a belief that some people have, and then the uh, the belief that other people have, where it's it's really just just really bad conduct. You know that it's human. It's it's human created. And it's all well, and and I guess I think it's. It's, it always dwells 
within us, but it's not this force really outside of us. It's something that we're all capable of. And I think that's what Italy's history and Germany's history tell us. Okay, so let's start with the first book, which mm-hmm. which is a little closer to home. It's Alabama Moon by Watt Key. So what's the book about? So it's it's a really intriguing plot. It's about a boy who's 10 years old, and he's in um, Alabama, and mm-hmm. his name is Moon. That's why it's called Alabama Moon. And he is the son of survivalists, mm. um, extreme survivalists. And he has grown up in a forest and with his mother and father. And he has been told since you know he could understand that the world outside is bad and that the government is going to try and control you Mm. and that you must know how to survive in the woods on your own, entirely on your own, um, because everything else is dangerous and evil. Right. And so um, the novel begins, and I I think uh, I'm not giving too much away, but his mother has died already when he was younger, and his father dies. Mm. And here is this child in the middle of a forest all alone. And civilization comes in, right. as it will, and just life and, and loneliness and the inability really to survive on his own. Although he's, an amazing, uh, he's amazingly capable of, of living in the forest. But he he finally has to enter civilization and go beyond the walls of that forest. And um, he is so fearful of everything that his father said was out there. And so it's his encounter with the world. Wow. So as as a reader, are you hoping that he will come to, and maybe, maybe you can't do this without spoiling the book, but I'm wondering if, the experience as a reader is you wind up rooting for him and, and hoping that he escapes from, you know, the clutches of the police or the schools or whoever it is who are trying to, to civilize him. Or if you're opposed to what he's trying to do and you, you hope that he will change his mind and embrace, you know, maybe go back home to Alabama and, and live um, among the civilized people. Well, you, you know, you have a mix of feelings because the authority figures in here, uh, this cop is really kind of a bad guy, this mm. Sanders guy. Right. Um, although the head of the boy, the, the home for boys, these wayward boys, he gets stuck in there for a little bit. He seems genuinely good and con- caring, but, but Moon can't, he, again, he can't discern what is good and what is evil, right? He can't mm-hmm. discern who's on his side and who isn't. Um, it's the other children who he, he eventually learns to trust and bond with and take care of. And that really is how things transform for him. Right. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. It's such an interesting idea to think of. Um, I mean, he's almost like the product of a of an experiment or something, even though I think a lot of people do have uh, feelings like this and, and people live off the grid. And, and you can imagine it being, uh, in some ways a natural way to, to raise a child if those are your beliefs. Um, but the idea then that you're left with that and you would not know who to trust and not not have any any grounding for just behavior in the world, yeah. 
Yeah. It's really a fascinating idea. It, it is, and it's it's so well told. And obviously, the author knows something about the woods of Alabama. Um, right. And there there's a struggle in Moon. He he ends up in jail his first night out, and uh, he's never had such a nice, cozy bed, and it's warm, and he gets he gets eggs for breakfast instead of you know roots. <laughs> and, and acorns right. like he usually has and um he's allowed to eat as much as he wants he doesn't have to save anything or throw anything away um but then you know there's this just claustrophobia that overcomes him and when he gets back out in the woods you hear with him the bird song and you feel the the creek and you mm. have a sense of the wind blowing and you experience that freedom through this child Right. Um, That's interesting. And I guess in some ways we all kind of have a set of conceptions that we grew up with that we in some ways need to overcome or, or cast aside. And and there's probably good things and bad things about all of those as well. So I think it's, even though it sounds like a bit of an extreme example, we probably all can relate to that experience of, well, what does it mean to have to come to grips with who you were and who you are and who you're going to be? Right. And, and that, well, and I think, you know, in an American context, who you have to rely on, you know, right. that we really need community. And I think he's, his dad has told him to go to Alaska, like his dying words. <laughs> okay, Alaska <laughs> is really far from Alabama. <laughs> this little kid. And, he, you know, he doesn't have any concept. He doesn't have a map. You know, he doesn't, he has no concept. Right. Um, he has to give up that sort of fairyland and realize that community is good. Mm. And um, I think a lot of us can sometimes think, you know, autonomy and our self-reliance is overly important. Well, that is uh, definitely going to go on my list of, I've actually already have it on my list of, of books to buy, and I can't wait to read it. Um, let's take a look at the second book which is okay. uh, Mr. Palomar by Italo Calvino. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you've been recommending Calvino to me for the last couple of decades, probably. <laughs> um, and he is one of my favorite authors. I've been, uh, I've, I've probably read, I don't know, five or six of his books, although I somehow missed this one. And as I was looking it up in preparation for this, I read this description, which I want to share, which okay. was, uh, I think it was from Time Out, and it said... Mm -hmm. Quote, each brief chapter reads like an exploded haiku, with Mr. Palomar reading a universe into the proverbial grain of sand. I love that quotation, and I, I think that there is now a link to our little uh, moon from okay. from the previous conversation, you know, this, this, this study of the things of nature. Mm -hmm. So um, I think Palomar, Mr. Palomar is, is a book that I think is especially poignant for people in their in their middle years. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, I gave my dad this book. He had read other books by Calvino that I shoved on him. And this is the one that he liked most, and I think he was sort of at the right stage of life to read right, it. Right, right. Um, I feel like I'm at the right stage. I almost put down a, a Baron in the Trees because I love, love, love that book. But this, right now, at this stage of life, I feel like Palomar is is just uh, a more comfortable fit. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, who is he? He is this really anxious, anxious guy <laughs> who is j 
get a handle on on what he sees and what he knows. He just, in a way, he's on this quest to just know mm. a couple of things. Right, you with know? certainty. With certainty, with certainty. And, right. okay, so I love Calvino because Calvino was loved the Enlightenment era, which is what I work on, right? Yep. And I think a bunch of these authors love the Enlightenment era. You know, this this sort of empirical proof time, this right. reasonable time, right? This this emphasis on reason over emotion. Mm-hmm. And poor Mr. Palomar is is trying to read the universe in a proverbial grain of sand. In the very first chapter which is my favorite in a way. I mean, it's the one that's, I haven't read, I haven't read this book in a while, but it's the one that I just absolutely will never forget. And he's on the beach near his house and he's looking out and all he wants to do is capture one single wave from its crest to its (laughs) (laughs) demise. Just isolate it. And somehow by knowing that, he will know everything if he right. can just do that. Right. He'll have a belief in his ability to do it, which will tell him that it can be done. That's right. That's oh, right. He yeah. just wants to capture, just to, to to collect this, to put it in his pocket. But the great thing about Palomar, like so many Italian protagonists who I love, he's a total failure. He's a total <laughs> failure. He's a failure. You know, he's like this right. phenomenologist, but he just can't quite get it. Right. You know, and it's this anxiety. Oh, that's so funny. I feel like if a, if an American was writing this book, the protagonist would be like a a, a professor of metaphysics mm-hmm. or something, or they would be, you know, some kind of... Um, of special scientist or someone who is exceptionally qualified to undertake this mission. And instead, you know, we get kind of a, I'm, I'm guessing Mr. Palomar from what you've said so far is a little disheveled and a little, a little rumpled and, and he's like the perfect schlemiel, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. And he just, he just, um, so this, his dilemma is not so much about the discernment of good and evil, but really about discernment itself. Mm. Just to see and then to know, right? Mm-hmm. And and mostly to know himself and his place in the universe. And, you know, I love the fact that the book ends with him deciding the end of the end of this strange book that's organized in a series of threes, right. which again is sort of, it's so funny, it's so ironic right, three, the perfect word, and there are all these connections. But then you realize they're all arbitrary. Everything <laughs> is arbitrary, you know. So in right. the end, he decides that his, he's just going to exist as if he were dead. And then maybe all this anxiety will leave him, you know. So he's going to pretend like he's dead, and the world <laughs> doesn't need him anymore, and he can have this kind of detachment. Um, but even then... He can't, he just can't, he can't, you know, that somehow that will assuage his, his anxiety to understand, to know what's going on, to, to see the world piece by piece. Right. You know, and then see his place in it. But it's so ironic because the end is that, oh, then he's decided, well, wait a minute. If I just think about time instant by instant forever, 
then I'll I'll really understand everything. And um, anyway, of course, that's impossible. That doesn't work either. <laughs> it doesn't work out. <laughs> but I do feel like this ambivalence that we all feel, this desire to know, but things get cloudier and cloudier. And it's interesting to me that you say that it hits you at this time of life and it hit your father at, at the time of life when he read it. And it, it, are you, is what you're saying is that if, if, uh, if you handed it to a 22 year old, they might get really impatient or they might see it, but see it as sort of an amusement or a, an intellectual curiosity, but not feel it emotionally the way that people might when they're in their forties or fifties. I think absolutely. And the funny right. thing is that when I handed it to my dad, I liked it. I didn't mm -hmm. love it. Um, but after his reaction, you know, mm. I, I, I then went back to it later in life. And I'm like, oh, I get it now. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he is he is just this chronic failure at doing and, and so many things are so funny. Like he's walking along the beach and he's pacing up and down, trying to get the system down of how he's going to isolate these things. And um, it's an Italian beach, so, of course, they're topless women. And he keeps walking back and forth, back and forth. And, of course, they think he's some kind of lech. And he, so, he doesn't realize that these women are suddenly furious that this guy is walking. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's this kind of thing that's so, so, so funny. Okay, so let's take a look at the third book, which is okay. Queer Pasticcio. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, Bruto on Via Merulana by Carlo Emilio Gada. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. One thing I wanted to say is is point out for English readers that uh, both of the previous book and this book were translated by William Weaver, who's right. a legendary translator. And, and in fact, he's he's so legendary that I remember people telling me that if I was looking for a book to read that was written by an Italian, I should just look for books that he translated. <laughs> Uh, you know, because both because he they would be translated so well, but also there was a period where he was just getting the cream of the crop, I think, where would come his way to translate. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So, right. He, he translated everybody great. And in fact, you might even have heard that from Umberto Eco, who said that his book, The Name of the Rose, was much better in English translation because of what a good writer and William Weaver was than in his original Italian. And the funny thing is I got to meet Will, uh, William Weaver. Oh, you did? Um, I, had, I had dinner with him many, many years ago in Texas. And oh. the funny thing is that he was just this gracious, um, dapper, southern gentleman and very funny. But his accent in Italian was just hysterical. <laughs> I mean, absolutely hysterical. I mean, it was, you know, buongiorno is how you say good day. And he'd be, buongiorno. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Isn't that funny? So, oh, that's great. But of yeah. course, he's probably somebody, I mean, he's so good. He's probably somebody who could have been a novelist in English and his, you know, or a poet or something. I mean, he's, he, his English is, must be, uh, his facility with the English language must be incredible. Well, Gadda has got to be one of the hardest novelists to translate. Right. Because, and, and, of course, he's been compared to Joyce because of all the layers and mm. all of the inside jokes and all of the, the multiple references. And mm -hmm. Weaver, I mean, that just shows you his, his immense 
language ability. Let's talk about the translation right in the title. So, Quer mm -hmm. Pasticcio Bruto. Now, Quer, mm -hmm. I think, is a Roman uh, dialect, right? Right. So, we know we're in Rome. And then, Pasticcio is it's translated by Mr. Weaver as that awful mess. Um, right. But it's kind of a, it's a slightly made up word, right? It's a made up word. So acho, whenever you put acho at the end of the word, that mm -hmm. already means ugly or awful, right. right? So ragazzo is boy. Ragazzaccio is like a really bad delinquent boy. <laughs> so pasticcio is already mess. But to say pasticcio is sort of to double it. Right. You know, it's, so, it's really kind of hyperbolic. And then to add brutto, I mean, pasticcio <laughs> is usually brutto, but I mean, pastiche, right? It's, a, a, you know, a collage, a mix. Um, but this is just telling you it's this just catastrophe. Right, <laughs> but right. there's something funny about it, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can hear Roman sort of just your Roman guy on the street. Quir pasticcio brutto. I learned Italian in Rome, by the way, and I love Roman, <laughs> love Roman, because it's just, you know, base. <laughs> so now the that awful mess, though, almost seems a little under, understated or a little a little wry. But why don't we talk about yeah. what awful mess we're talking about, and then we'll see if the translation fits. So what 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 do they mean by the awful mess? What are we dealing with here? So you're dealing with two murders. Well, a murder and a heist, and you're dealing with a uh, crime in fascist Rome. Mm -hmm. But the backdrop, of course, is fascism, fascist Italy, and right. um, that that awful mess that ha is happening to Rome and to the nation is kind of the backdrop. The other thing is, linguistically, this book is so interesting. You know, it, it's been called a, bar a Baroque book because... Mm -hmm. it, it mixes vulgar and philosophical language. And mm -hmm. there, again, kind of, I mean, the, I don't think that the comparison to Joyce is unfounded, this incredible mix. So the pasticcio is also kind of that, this experiment going on in the language of the book. Oh. So <laughs> you have a jewel heist, and then you have this incredibly graphic crime scene with the murdered woman in mm -hmm. a really titillating position. And um, it's something that we see now nightly on primetime uh, detective shows, but this was really shocking when it came out. Mm. So it's these crimes that are going on in Rome, and then you have Inspector Ingravallo called Chicho, which means, you know, the fat guy. He is our inspector, and he's a really interesting guy. I mean, he is obsessed with words. And he's, he's a philosopher, mm -hmm. an amateur philosopher, and he doesn't see anything in, in straight lines. There's nothing linear about his thinking. Right. So his own thinking is kind of a pasticcio uh, of connections and subconnections and tangents. And, um, and that's kind of what happens in this detective novel. Right. This and detective novel that really Establish the genre in Italy after fascism. It really, I think it's probably the most important 20th century novel. Wow. In, 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 in its impact on writing, mm -hmm. on everybody who wrote after Gadda. Now, you know, one of the things that we associate with detective books in the, in the popular format 
is kind of a, a neat and tidy ending, and the detective wraps things up at the end. Right. Um, but it sounds like that's not the way Gada approaches uh, the world, <laughs> let alone no. uh, a narrative. No, and in fact, of course, this is this is sort of um, a proto postmodern detective novel because there is no there's no solution to the crime. And just to give you a little backdrop, so under Mussolini in 1929, crime novels were outlawed in fascist Italy. And the other thing that he did was he tore the crime page from every newspaper. So crime did not exist under fascism, either in fact or in art. Wow. And so one of the reasons that you have people like Gadda and Calvino, if on a winter's night, a Mm -hmm. A Traveler, Um, that's his detective novel. And Umberto Eco, of course, with The Name of the Rose and Foucault's Pendulum. But The Name of the Rose is the the more important one. And and Shasha, one of the reasons that they turn to fascist fiction, I mean, to uh, crime fiction, is because it was outlawed. And it didn't didn't exist, right? So what what did Mussolini, what what did he think he was doing? Um, crime, there is no crime under fascism. There can't be any crime under fascism. He also wanted to get rid of any, um, imports, Mm. only native products, right? And so, um, the reason Italian crime fiction is called giallo is because Mm -hmm. giallo is the color yellow, and Mondadori published this, um, series of detective novels. You know, we're talking... Conan Doyle and, you know, British, and they were foreign imports, um, French crime fiction, and all of that was banned under the fascists. Wow. So this was seen in a way as the most subversive, anti-fascist, uh, modern, and and intellectual genre to write in mm-hmm. after, after the end of fascism. Yeah. So, I, I mean, so the book, just to... Just to, I don't think we mentioned this. So it was written in 1957, but it's set in 1927, sort of right as fascist Italy right. is, is is getting rolling. And what is the the incompletion or the you know the the lack of resolution? Uh, you could imagine that if he was wanted to take on fascism, he might have come up with a different a different way of mm-hmm. constructing the novel. Um, what is that? What is that? A commentary on, on fiction or on society or on life or why? Why are things circling around and not coming to a resolution? Well, I, I think that you know that's a that's a, that's a really great question, and and it and this goes on and on and on in in all these writers that came after Gadda. Mm-hmm. They write postmodern detective novels that have no solution to the crime, mm-hmm. like The Name of the Rose doesn't, like Todomodo doesn't. Gadda kind of begins this tradition with Cuerpasticaccio, but it is about, I think it's about life, and it's about these existential questions that we want answers to, to which there aren't any. And I do think that it is a, it is a response to fascism. I think we have to see it that way. So are they saying you're not going to get a Hollywood ending here because life is a lot tougher than that? And if you don't believe me, just remember what it was like when we lived through the fascist era? Yeah, I think there's that. 
And I think there is this idea of, well, in in some cases, it's an unreliable narrator, that mm-hmm. the authorities are untrustworthy. Oh, right, and, right. Um, it's almost like a discomfort on the author's part of seizing that ability to uh, to form life in a way or to, to make life bend to your will. Well, and you think about, you come out of this era where good and evil have been painted in absolute terms, mm-hmm. right? And so those absolutes are gone. Right. They're they're gone. It is much more complicated. And, and it's like you were saying, there's evil, a little bit of evil in everyone. And, and so what would it mean to have a good guy and a bad guy and a white hat and a black hat if you're, if things are a lot more gray? Well, and I also think that, you know, in, in contrast to modernism that looked to art to provide some kind of transcendental answer, right? Mm-hmm. Art is not is not going to play that role. So you can't look to art to satisfy that need mm-hmm. for truth. It's not going to be here either. And is that because art had failed them in the fascist era? Well, think of how the fascists used art. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, art and propaganda were indecipherable. Right. So all of that is problematized in these books. I think that unease, that lack of, of escape, uh, you know, your, your, your escape is in, into literature is denied and you get no satisfying answers. I think all of that is connected to what they've just gone through. Mm, man, I feel uh, I feel goosebumps on my arms. <laughs> we better move on. We better move on yeah, to the next and one. We, Although... <laughs> and we as a country better not make this mistake. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. Right. We better move on. Although I don't know if we're gonna if we're gonna get much relief in the next couple of books either. But let's take a look. So your right. your fourth right. book is Toto Moto by uh, Leonard Shasha, and this is another detective book. Um, you previewed it a little bit when you mentioned it earlier. And this one actually sounded like a fun one to me. It sounds like there are some some seekers, some religious or um, I don't know if they're religious seekers, but they're they're people who are headed out to a monastery for some. Uh, spiritual cleansing, and then people start disappearing one by one, kind of like mm-hmm. Agatha Christie's uh, And Then There Were None. Right. It sounds like a cross between that book and Echo's uh, Name of the Rose. So this is a, this is almost like pamphlet size. This is a really, really short novel, uh-huh. and there's no good translation of it. So, Jack, uh-huh. if you want to <laughs> get out there and do a good translation, we need one because it's such a great book. It's a great book for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. but first of all, Totomoto, I don't know if you you saw this, but you know, it comes from St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuit order, his mm. uh, spiritual exercise book, Every Way to Serve God. And it's ironic because what you have is this, you have a you have a narrator who's never named. All you know is that he's an artist. Mhm. And he's driving along. He needs to get away from his life. He needs a kind of emotional and moral retreat. And lo and behold, he comes across this strange retreat house outside of Rome. And he decides he's just going to stop. Why not? Check it out. And he meets the priest who is in charge of the retreat house, 
they have this kind of intellectual interest in each other, and he ends up deciding to stay. Don Gaetano is the priest, and he's hosting a retreat of the the, the leadership classes mm. in in Italy. So he's got people from the Vatican. He's got major political leaders from Rome. He's got major industrialists. They're all coming out to, you know, pray and engage in, you know, um, uh, meditation, meditate on what's really important. But actually, of course, they're all coming about coming out to make deals and uh, um, engage in the same corruption that they engage in in Rome. And it's so funny because the novel, when when the painter goes into the retreat house, there are these women well, you realize that they're the mistresses of all these people coming to the retreat house. So right. they've just been kind of stashed at the re- religious retreat house. Um, <laughs> but the great thing about this is you as a reader are trying to figure out what the heck is going on through this mm-hmm. whole... Eventually, people just start dying. You know, like they're doing this round circle. It's almost like from Dante's Inferno. Like one of the circles was there moving around in a circle praying and then suddenly somebody they realize that someone has been murdered in the midst, in their midst right and other people start getting murdered and um but you have the painter's perspective and the painter admits that he is amoral throughout you're you are trying to figure out who is playing what role and who is the murderer the painter himself when a classmate of his who's a policeman who's part of this religious retreat, um, says he will conduct the investigation. The painter's like, oh, I did it. I did it. Hmm. This is another novel that has no conclusion, a crime that remains unsolved. Mm-hmm. But one of the great things about this is there are paintings all throughout, and there are references to hundreds of paintings. Hmm. And nobody has done a really good study. I had a student one time look up all the paintings and how they extend the story. Oh, right. The story is actually much larger than what's on the page, um, and it, 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 it is extended visually in all kinds of interesting directions. You mean that the narrative is uh, carried out through the paintings? Exactly. Wow. Exactly, and complicated by the paintings. And, and Shasha was a great uh, con- art connoisseur. I mean, he really knew, he was, a, he was an historian, an art historian, in many ways, he really is expanding this narrative in in, in fantastic ways, um, and, and creating a lot more for you, the reader, to you know solve <laughs> and now, put well, more and more and more pieces together. Now, what but, does this um, say about evil? Is it that it's unknowable, or that evil things can happen to people without ever without us ever really understanding why, or or that it's happening for you know it might be happening for no purpose? Um. Well, everyone in this novel is evil. Oh, okay. So it's the victims as well as the murderer. Or the victims, <laughs> the murderer, um, and and the most evil is the narrator himself, who oh, is completely right. unreliable, but you realize. But in a sense, he... I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, you these postmodern detective novels are very interesting because they murder the text itself. Mm-hmm. In a sense. Because mm. they undo everything that you've just read. <laughs> right. You're left with nothing. And that's kind of what happens here. But you have in the crypt of the church an image of the devil. And 
what you see is this image seems to be replicated over and over, including Don Gaetano with his little pince nez on the end of his nose. The devil is wearing glasses. Mm-hmm. And again, this is about seeing. What do you see and who sees? The, the, the priest who's in charge seems to be, I mean, he looks very much like the devil in the painting. Hmm. Shasha was Sicilian. And it sounds yes. like in, in all of his books, he kind of, his main uh, subject was corruption, whether it was religious or military or political corruption. It almost seems like he's, this is his way of getting at those themes is to say, there's there's nobody to trust here, that that this is what society is like, or this is what reality is. There's no basis for trust. Everything is shifting and superficial and and there's no there's no moral grounding to any of it. I think that's true. And you know, the little you know, in his other novels that are detective novels, and 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 that don't have solutions either, the the little guy that tries to stand up against the corruption, maybe for egocentric reasons, always loses. Always loses. <laughs> because everybody again, and you know, you, not right. only you know, you have the whole mafia thing. Everyone is complicit. Right. Everyone, and and not only does he lose by trying to expose the corruption, but he's a fool. Right. He's he's not heroic. He's not a martyr. He's a fool. It's very cynical. It's incredibly cynical. Hmm. Really cynical. Yeah. Okay, well, that's that sounds like another great one. Let's look at the fifth book. Okay. Family Sayings by Natalia Ginsburg. This is another one I think you and others have been recommending to me for a long time is uh, Ginsburg. And yet again, this is one that although I've read uh, several of her books, I haven't read this one. Uh, this is her memoir. Um, I'm not sure if it's the only memoir she wrote or if there are others. But in any case, she's famous for her novels, but I feel like she's not famous enough. I agree, and I think this is such a wonderful book. I love anybody who has a family should read this book. Mm. Anybody who's connected to a family, who has a family of their own, who mm-hmm. comes from a family should read this book because everyone will recognize themselves and their family in this book and all the good of family and all that's funny about families and all that's kind of tragic about families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really I love this book, and I teach it a lot. And in, and in many ways, it's a very, yeah, it's a memoir, but she says, and she says that every name is the real name, but it's written like a novel. And mm. it, it, it's, it's an interesting mix. People don't know how to categorize it in terms of genre, because there's a lot going on here. But again, this is a book set in the middle of fascism, mm-hmm. and it is a response to fascism in, in many ways. And it's it's looking at sort of the microcosmic experience in the macrocosmic that's just blowing up around them. Mm-hmm. And it's this funny, funny family. She was born Levi, Levi. Her father was a scientist and a university professor. And um, she has, you know, a sister and a bunch of brothers. And they live in Turin. And in many ways, so it's called family sayings or lessico familiare, the family lexicon. Mm-hmm. Because that is the fundamental protest against the language, the mindset, 
and the propaganda of fascism. Right. And she had a she had a very direct connection with fascism, right? She was basically right. well, she she started out she was uh, born in a into a Jewish family, but she was raised in a secular household. And then uh, she got married, and she and her husband, during World War II, put out a, an anti-fascist newspaper, and her husband was tortured and killed in jail. I think she got remarried after the war, but it seems like when she was writing this book, she was still in the, you know, in the throes of of grief and uncertainty and and what it meant what she had just seen and what she had just lived through and and questions of identity about who she was and 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 what she had to believe in and and all of that i'm not sure how much she addresses those things directly it sounds like she she often takes an indirect approach to the to well, her that, themes that's exactly right mm -hmm. so there is nothing so there are these crazy ellipses Every time something terrible happens, right. her memoir novel, whatever you want to call it, goes silent. Mm -hmm. And you just, um, what the, the, the organizing mechanism of the entire book are these repeated sayings that are meaningless to anyone who's not inside this family, but are sort of the, they're the, the identifiers of that family. She calls it my family's Latin that mm -hmm. even if we are in the darkest cave, if you heard this rhyme or this funny expression or this um, nickname, we would know each other, and that is her family's Latin, and it what what unites them in this in this crazy time. And yeah, her she was very young when she married Leonie Ginsburg, mm -hmm. and he was a Russian translator. She, you know, she was a young, young, young girl and was a writer and started writing. And then they all worked for the Enaudi publisher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then her husband was involved in in the anti-fascist movement. She was sent to the Confine, right? To, uh, oh, I can't even remember what we call it in English, where you're sent to a small town instead of to prison. Mm -hmm. And she has young children and then um, Leone goes back to Rome, and he's arrested again, and he dies in Araceli prison. And she, I mean, there's there, there's virtually no commentary on his death, or on the deaths of the many people in their lives, and on the tragedy. Those are simply elided. Anything personal, really, truly personal is not in this book because she says it's not her story. Hmm. So it's the story of her family. Now, some might say that she's kind of running away from the, the difficulty or that she's avoiding, but she was actually a very brave person. And I'm, I'm wondering, it seems like more of a, a literary choice or a stylistic choice or that it's more of a commentary on these things. So I guess I guess I need to know more about what you think she means by... Uh, it's not her story. Well, I think what she wanted to do was tell the story of her family mm. and not her. And what defined her family was, <laughs> well, really, her, her father was sort of the central figure. Mm -hmm. And he's just so funny. He's so bigoted. This is why this book has never been well translated into English, because you just can't translate that humor. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to laugh at 
you know, racist term, mm-hmm. but you have to put it in this kooky context of this family. He's, you know, you may be too young to remember Archie Bunker, but he is a kind of Archie Bunker right. of Turin, Italy, <laughs> and of this moment. <laughs> and he's, you know, he comes across as really gruff and bigoted, and he has all these rules, but you realize that he's just, uh, an incredibly um, anxious and frightened person in many ways, mm. and, very, and 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 loves his children, but he does not express it. And she just captures kind of the essence of that family. But if she went too far into the tragedies of her own life, she would have lost sight of this family. It really is a remarkable piece of work. It seems very simplistic when you read it, mm-hmm. but then you try to think, how could I ever write something like this? And it's hard. Mm. And do you do you feel like the the discernment of good and evil? Do you feel like this is something that you're watching the narrator uh, have moments of recognition in real time, or do you feel like it's something the author has come to grips with before embarking on writing the book? Well, she plays so many roles as an, as narrator. Mm-hmm. So she is the naive observer. She's the youngest child. And so she's both child narrator and and the author, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of double consciousness throughout. But yeah, her naivete is something that's really important, and that's part of the reason, I think, that she holds the tragic at bay for most of this until, you know, she's old enough to understand. There's a common blindness. In the mm. family, like with most families in Italy who are anti-fascist, they keep joking, oh, he's such an idiot, he's going to go away. Who can right. take him seriously? This won't last, this won't last, this right. won't last. I think like many, 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 many people. And so you feel it dawning, and you know, when the dad gets arrested and the sons get arrested and they go off to prison, I mean, go off to jail overnight, maybe for a couple of days. They come home and the mom's like, oh, we're going to just go back to our dull life. Mm-hmm. No more excitement. They are not aware of the gravity until it sort of overtakes them, until mm-hmm. their friends are disappeared or their children are in exile. Or So you really do feel like you're in this family. You're with them. And how human it is not to see, not to imagine that this is really the end of the world. And yeah. Listen up, America. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is a so... cautionary, cautionary exchange. Okay. So let's, I, I feel like in some ways we could have spent five hours with giving a, an hour to each of these five books, uh, but I think we'll have to, to wrap things up there. But before we go... I'm curious to know whether you chose this uh, theme and then found the books or if you just thought of five books you really enjoyed and then the theme kind of came to you after you thought of them as a collection. You know, it was the second. What do you think that says about your interests, that all of the things that you reached for as, as things that you most wanted to share with other people had this theme of, of good and evil? You know, I think the even larger theme is discernment, Mm. to be able Mm -hmm. to decipher what you're looking at. Mm. You know, Palomar, I'm sure you know, right, is actually a telescope. Right. We all crave a lens that will allow us to see what's true. Mm. And I think that's what all of these are about, that 
trying to see correctly, trying to see what's in front of you. I think it's very, very difficult. And especially when we're talking about good and evil, right? Especially in those cases, because the stakes are so high. But I think that oftentimes it's just a challenge to know what you're looking at mm. right in front of you. And I, I think uh, now that I think of it, I think that's why I started this podcast. <laughs> Is that right? I think so. <laughs> yes. Well, let's stop there. Professor okay. Rebecca Mesbarger, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. I loved it. Okay. Wasn't that great? There's one correction. There was a part where Rebecca said she stays in a confine, and she forgot the English word, but she said it was a small town that they take you to instead of a jail. I didn't provide the English word, but I have it now. It's called My Childhood. So, what a fun one. So glad she was able to join me, and I hope she comes back soon. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did like the podcast, please help us spread the word. You can do that by posting links to it on Facebook, Twitter, or however you communicate with the world. You can also leave us an iTunes review or rate us highly by clicking on the five stars. We really appreciate it. It also really helps if you subscribe. Subscribing to the podcast is also a great way to make sure that you don't miss a future episode. We've got Augustine coming up, part of our chronological journey through the history of literature, as well as an episode on the underrated Spanish novelist and philosopher Javier Marias. Another good episode that's coming up, Alice Monroe. What a treat that will be. And another fun one with Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who will join me to talk about Hemingway and Fitzgerald, where the two of us will provide you with 10 things that you've never heard about those two celebrated authors. Is that possible? Yes, it is. And it's all available to you for free, just for the cost of pressing the subscribe button. We also like to hear your comments and emails. Send emails to jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or you can leave comments at jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. That's it for now. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.